This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Hey, this is Jason Elam. Join Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and me for the Messy Spirituality Podcast, where we try to empower your spiritual evolution with honest conversation about how to be a better human, taking a critical look at toxic Bible stories, and look behind the headlines for growth opportunities underlying current events. Hey, it's a bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering Southern Baptist preacher. What could possibly go wrong? Check out the Messy Spirituality Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. What's up, friends? Welcome back. Another episode of the New Evangelicals podcast. Good to be with you. I love doing this work. Thank you for letting me do it. It means the world. On this episode, I interviewed Sarah Billups, who wrote a book, Orphaned Believers, How a Generation of Christian Exiles Can Find the Way Home. This is a great conversation for people who are probably somewhat like me in the sense of you maybe you deconstructed you love the idea of deconstructing it's a helpful tool and you're like okay, and you're thinking to yourself okay what do I do now how do I navigate maybe better paths forward in the Christian tradition this is the episode for you this is a great conversation Sarah is just a, a really genuine person so I hope you get as much out of this podcast as I did it's a phenomenal interview and I always want to say every episode I will never not thank you for being part of this community for listening or watching the show um, or the podcast. Listen, I know I ask every time, but I'm sincere in asking it. Would you be willing to give us a rating and a review on iTunes or Spotify or give us a subscribe and a like on YouTube? It just helps us get the word out about the work that we're doing. It would just mean the world. And of course, we are a nonprofit organization holding space for many people. If you want to be part of that work, we are a nonprofit, like I said a second ago, and donations are tax deductible. And that's how we function. Donations are what allow us to do this work that you see. It allows us to do the podcast every week. It allows us to do content on Instagram. It allows us to do community events. So if that's you, if you want to help us out, you can click on the link in our show notes. All right, friends, without further ado, here's my interview with Sarah. I'll talk to you all later on. All right, Sarah Billups on the podcast. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for making time. Thanks, Tim. I'm really pumped to be here. Yeah, you know, it is. Um, I, I get to talk to such amazing people and having you on the podcast. is just another one of those moments where it's like, this is so cool. Um, you wrote a book, Orphan Believers, an invitation for the culturally and spiritually estranged to find hope and restoration in Jesus. We're going to dive into the book, um, but the audience who listens to us already knows what's coming. We got to dive into who you are first. So I'm cool. always curious, whenever I have someone on my show, how did you grow up? What's your engagement or interaction with evangelical culture like when you grew up? Then how did you end up writing the book that we're here to talk about? I, I got to know that part as well. The floor is all yours. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Uh, so I'm I'm from Indiana. I grew up in the Midwest and moved to Seattle 18 years ago with my husband. We were really enamored with, well, you know, we were enamored with grunge. We were enamored with this idea of this kind of part of the country that had a pioneering spirit. Hmm. And I really wanted to escape my Midwestern kind of suburban strip mall experience. It was like really classic and like in a larger cultural setting, this is the time when there was a lot, there were a lot of folks moving to the city to start churches. 
Tim Keller and Regime were really kind of coming up in New York. There was a lot of discussion about intentional community. Shane Claiborne was talking about that. So we were really kind of riding that missional church wave Yeah, and decided it was time to try something new. So we landed in Seattle in the early 2000s to start an intentional community, um, not realizing that that was also the time in our city when Mars Hill was also kind of building and growing. And um, there was like a real hostility pretty quickly that we sensed towards evangelicals in the city that I think was surprising. We had this idea of Seattle as this place where all of our desire to find cool, arty, kind of well-crafted things could come together with our desire to live faith in a way that didn't feel like kind of a cultural Christian thing like we experienced in the Midwest, but felt a little bit more pioneering. But it quickly became clear that the, the city kind of began to assimilate us in a way we were surprised about. And this is an idea that um, John Mark Comer and Mark Sayers talk about and they're this cultural moment podcast from a few years ago, but this idea of uh, the city kind of assimilating folks in this era, like we didn't, we weren't prepared. We didn't know what we were doing and we didn't realize until very recently it's because we landed here in that sort of larger cultural context of Mars Hill and how that was changing the city. So that's, that's a little bit about kind of the last 20 years, but yeah, I came up in the Midwest Uh, My dad's a Messianic Jew, so he converted to Christianity in the 70s, came up celebrating Jewish holidays and Christian holidays. Dad, very obsessed with end times culture, like many parents in that era. And so I came up uh, going to a non-denominational evangelical church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, spent Saturday at the mall and Sunday at church. So I was very much... I very much came up. We weren't really, we were, I wasn't homeschooled. We weren't, we were very culturally assimilated in a different sort of way. So mm. I really wanted to escape that and come to the city and see what that was like. And instead kind of became surprised in different ways. So I, I've had kind of two parts of my story. Yeah. Um, so I kind of, I kind of understand what it's like to be a Christian in a place where cultural Christianity is really common. Um, and it's hard to find Jesus looking around like in the pew sometimes mm. and what it's like to land in a place like Seattle, that is beautiful and wonderful. And if you go to church, it's probably not by accident. Right, right. Um, okay, that makes sense um, and is helpful. So let's talk about about the book. I mean, how did you get to a place in your life where you said, I have to write this book called Orphan Believers and try to give people some kind of hope. So like, what what's the the human experience that produced this book for you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I wanted to explore how my experience coming up as an evangelical in the 80s and 90s um, impacted my own life, but also what was going on in the broader church today um, and talk about what is worth keeping and what is worth calling to account. Um, And so, you know, this is a time where the church that we know it is struggling to come to terms with what that means and what the church is. And so... Mm -hmm. I, I was really compelled to look back and think what was going on with culture wars, what was going on more broadly when I was coming up in those decades right. and what was happening with my parents and with boomers that uh, sort of were through lines to where we are today with Trump and with nationalism. So I was trying to kind of tug back and see if I could uh, sort of understand some of those pieces. Okay. Um, so what did you, I mean, let, let, let's keep going down this trajectory. So, you know, so far what I got is that you grew up in Indiana um, and then you went to the Pacific Northwest, part of a, you know, th- this this spirit, right, of like pioneering. And I know exactly what you're talking about. I've helped plant missional communities myself. I'm well aware of like the, the, the sense of wanting to do something new and different and fresh. And that's baked in, you know, the, the term was, you know, organic community and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And you, you, you just want friends that, 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 that you can love your neighbor with and that you can love Jesus with. Right. And so you find yourself looking back, realizing that maybe you were part of some bigger currents that kind of swept you away. Mm-hmm. And then you start thinking, well, how did these things all, you know, play a role in my current faith tradition and how I see the faith now. And then you write a book called Orphan Believers. So I'm guessing that what you found made you feel in some ways outside of that group. Am, am, am I along the right path here? Yeah, that's right. When I, I mean, when I say orphaned believers, I just mean uh, anybody who looks around the American church and wonders where Jesus is. You know, and so I think about that. Yeah. You <laughs> yeah, I totally know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think you do for sure. And so I think about that in two ways. One, culturally, like mm. in 
somebody in secular, like being a Christian who engages in culture in the city, um, I'm in a lot of spaces where that background requires a lot of caveats if I explain that identity. And so it's exhausting to talk about being a Christian, but not that kind of Christian. So I think a lot about the language I use to talk about what that means and how to, you know, so I'm I, I'm estranged from like stadium concert large evangelical megachurches uh, or you know I'm interested in nuance and authentic expressions of faith and how do I do that culturally and then also spiritually like what do we do if we're a person who believes in Jesus but we feel like we've been hung out to dry in the church um, yeah. and, and, ha- and if we can't square reading the gospel with what we see in the church today. So I'm, I'm kind of t- tackling it from both the cultural and spiritual kind of fronts. Yeah, that's really helpful. You know, that's why the New Evangelicals exist. That's why I started this work, because I had very much the same um, epiphany, right? At some point where I said, oh my gosh, how are we reading the same gospel accounts and coming away with these beliefs? Um, I, I don't understand. You know, the way I phrase it is, it was a wake-up call that, I assumed because we shared the same beliefs, we shared the same values, and we 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 didn't. We just didn't, right? And when I started this account almost two years ago now to the day on Instagram, I just I didn't know what the term deconstruction was. I'm just like, hey, anyone out else out here like thinking about this stuff? And before you know it, there's there's a lot of people going, yeah, a lot of us can't, we 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 just can't square it. We can't square it. So I'm kind of curious because you know the audience that you're talking to who's listening in. I'm going to say that probably the majority of them um, hear what you say and go, yes, like exactly. From your vantage point, looking back on on maybe um, the spiritual, well, it could be either side, spiritual or cultural. What are what are maybe the the three big things that you saw for you that made you go, yeah, uh, there's a problem in my in my faith tradition. Like, what were what would those three things be for you? Yeah, that's that makes sense. And Tim, I'll just go back and say for a second, I remember clearly when the New Evangelicals launched, how exciting it was to see your presence, how needed it is, and how quickly the message resonated. And so I just like, it's that those were the days when I was sort of poking around Instagram and trying to figure out <laughs> how to grow in that space. And it's a, it's mm. a complicated, I mean, online spaces are complicated, yeah. challenging, exhausting, but also um, so liberating when we connect. And so it's just been cool to kind of watch your work. Oh, that, so, um, that means a lot. Thank you. Honestly, thank you very much. Yeah, totally. But, you know, I, I saw a lot of different buckets, but the three that I really talk about in the book and that I have the most lived experience around are end times culture, mm. um, the idea that the fear that was projected in the 80s, you know, when I was coming up from the Cold War, when would the world end? Looking at what was going on in pop culture and Christian scare movies at the time, and also just larger kind of apocalyptic narratives, how Reagan was talking about the apocalypse in speeches. Um, that really perfectly was a perfect storm with my dad's obsession with premillennial dispensationalism, mm. end times and the rapture. And so I, I grew up with a real fear and also a sense of almost exceptionalism of sort of knowing the world was going to end in my lifetime. It was tragic because I wouldn't maybe get married or have a career, but it was also liberating to know that we could predict what was going on. We felt like we were kind of exceptional and in control. So I, those dynamics, the brokenness, the sadness and weight of that, I explore in the book, especially because many people I know can tell me the story of when a parent or like youth group leader said that the world was probably going to end in their lifetime so many stories of people like looking at like a blood red sky and thinking this is the day or my parents aren't home. Yes. You know, maybe, yeah. maybe they were raptured and I was left behind. So. I never had that thought. I was no way. I was above all that for sure. <laughs> never worried. Even at age 26, never worried on Christmas day when I couldn't find my family downstairs <laughs> that they got raptured. Never a thought just to be clear. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's such a visceral fear. So that's one, one bucket. Um, then thinking about culture wars in general, specific, mm. I mean, which is so huge, but right. obviously just thinking about how, you know, when I was 18, my dad drove me to the Ellen County Republican headquarters. I was registered as a card carrying Republican. And then we went next door and had hot dogs for lunch. I mean, I, I so Republicanism and evangelicalism collided seamlessly yeah. in my experience with a lot of, just like a lot of my peers. And that was certainly tethered to abortion. And so I look at culture wars, not just abortion, but also ones that might feel a little wackier to us now, backtracking on records or 
parental advisory stickers or right um, or Serrano's sorry to interrupt you people no. don't remember that war on the parental advisory thing you know and like people were worried about the kids and like you know the liberal agenda i guess you know it, it, i remember that vaguely i mean i i was born in 88 so that was a little bit before i was like really aware of what, what was happening around me but i remember looking back a few, few years later and being like wow like they were really concerned about explicit lyrics you know being totally, put in cds yeah. yeah there was this whole parental advisory committee in in congress that tipper gore led and yes that's right there are different <laughs> there's different sort of ratings with different songs like a print song was banned and I, it's really fascinating um so so I, I write about that and also um just around the national endowment for the arts and what was funded the artist serrano serrano had this this um this piece called piss christ that was just this like ign just ignited this whole culture war where like my dad was talking about like robert maplethorpe and like serrano and these like progressive artists because like somehow that got like on the evangelical mind and that was mm. like a talking point right. something to fear and that was like disgusting when yeah. really Serrano identifies as a Catholic and was criticizing kind of larger culture with that piece. No one thought about that. We were just looking for more fodder. So culture wars is a, a big bucket in the book. And the final is consumerism and mm. how, how so many competing forces shape us. And certainly evangelicals were no exception. We obviously had our own flavor of the market seeping in with uh, promise rings and like, <laughs> daddy daughter dance dances and conferences but also just the market in general like i watched tgif as a kid on friday oh, yeah. like the i ate a lot of sugary cereal like i came up on the television just like i came up at church and youth group so yeah. i talk about consumerism and how that's kind of affected us so well, end times culture wars consumerism i just want to be very clear for the audience you know i'm a very holy person i never bought a purity ring for my girlfriend when i was 17 <laughs> i never gave her one i never broke her heart that never happened i was always above all that being the We're pious the christian that straight. i was yeah i just want if you hear misinformation out there about tim and purity culture it's all fake i'm telling you right now i never did that i swear um i gotta be honest you know the culture wars thing is something that that now I I track a lot of that with Christian nationalism. You know, um, the end of the world and rapture was something that I personally, in a way, missed because my dad um, got saved later on in life and, and really became someone who believed that 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 one day the world's going to end and that's it. No rapture, no tribulation. There, there's a term for it. I'm, maybe it's amillennialist. I don't know. But <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the idea that hey, one day. Fingers snap, we're done. So even though I was in the culture of Left Behind, I mean, you could rent it out at, at, at the church bookstore, it was never like drilled into my head that, hey, one day, Tim, we're going to be raptured and everyone else is going to be behind here. So I, if, for maybe a minute, I want to kind of explore that, that, that one because for you growing up in that space, in that headspace, you know, yeah. That's a, I'll put it this way. The, the, the best way I can relate to it is I was taught very early on that when I die, if I'm not a Christian, I'm going to burn in hell forever, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a very tough belief to overcome and to lose, even when you're well into your, your 20s and for some people even way beyond that, right? Because as a kid, though that, that neural link was formed early and it's pretty deeply embedded that, hey, if you don't pray this prayer and trust Christ, you're going to be in the oven forever, right? So- yeah. I didn't grow up with with that in the rapture sense, but you know, was, was that kind of your experience with the rapture? Like ever since you can remember, it was hey, one day, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what was it like for you? Yeah, it was. I mean, one of my earliest memories um, is going in the living room. My my dad started talking about six six six, the mark of the beast. Like if we'd go to the grocery store and have some sort of way to pay, where we'd have an implanted chip. Like very early on in my life, so early that one of my first memories was like tracing 666 on my forehead in my living room, bursting out in tears, running to find my mom in the yard and saying, I'm going to hell. And I was probably six or seven years old. Oh I mean, it, it is that it is like that wow. thick and that far back. And wow. so, um, but that, that was a thread that I ingested, believed and felt total fear about for my whole life. And then um, I mean, we talked about the end times at dinner, Tim, like, like people talk about football. It was like a sport. It was like, I could tell you the whole script, like the seven year tribulation. Um, I remember in high school going out with my best friend for ice cream and she ordered a banana split and she was, <laughs> we were sitting in this back booth of an ice cream place. And I was talking about like the rapture, the tribulation, um, the battle of Gog and Magog. 
you know, and I, I literally remember like a spoon propelled in air and like her mouth hanging open. Like what the freak is she talking about? But I was like so convicted that I felt like it was my duty to talk to people I knew and loved so they wouldn't be left behind. Mm -hmm. And so that's, what's interesting. It it shifted from an internalized fear to a concern, to a sense of we are exceptional because we know. And so there was power and control, not in a way that felt judgmental. It felt like very melodramatic in my teen mind and concerning, but also it made me think maybe I can control other parts of my life. Like that that kind of power control thing has kind of seeped into adulthood. So it it really wasn't Mm -hmm. until I went to college and began to kind of have my own thoughts and understanding of the world and started reading literature and poetry, got into counterculture. It was, I didn't kind of shed those layers until I found this kind of other expression of, of Christianity that made me realize there were other ways to, to kind of see my faith. Um, yeah, that's so, helpful. So yeah. Talk to me about consumerism because I'll, I'll tell you what, when I was 18, I was reading Shane Claiborne's book for the first time while also listening to John MacArthur's sermons. Don't ask me how that worked, but it did somehow in my head. Uh, and I, I remember thinking like, wow, you know, this Shane guy, like these are really thought provoking things. And that kind of was one of the first seeds planted. Maybe think about how we deal with greed as a culture and just more and more stuff. We don't talk about that a whole lot on our podcast and platform, not because I'm not interested in it. I'm actually very interested in it, but I can never find like like yeah. the right way to communicate it. So for you, why did you put consumerism down as, as one of the big three um, for you rethinking, you know, your, your faith tradition? Yeah. I mean, the, the church uh, easily, the feeling is that it sells its services like a marketplace. Oh, yes. Um, yes. And that there's this like affluent middle-class culture, not just in real churches across America, but also on Instagram or like sort of spiritual self-help kind of Christian adjacent yes. folks yes. that are selling that message. Mm-hmm. So I got kind of hyper aware and thought back about how my own formation, um, I think that like spiritual formation lets us kind of have our eyes open and kind of resist messages um, that maybe we can customize or choose or decide um, how we want to interact and kind of be seen or what kind of image we want to have as Christians. It just feels kind of gross to me. I mean, to me, it's like Jesus was a brown skinned refugee (laughs) that was crucified. Like I'm compelled by Jesus and that message of like his life, like the way he really lived is like such a stark contrast to kind of the gross culture and industry built around the church that is just so parallel with the market that I just began to not be able to kind of swear how I can live in a way that's authentic and pursuing relationship with this like pretty radical <laughs> expression of God. Like how right. can I do that? And, and also live in a world where I can, um, where I can attend X conferences or buy X books about living my best life ever, only it's kind of Christianish. Like that just right. doesn't that doesn't work for me. So, so that's kind of the angle. So for you, I'm kind of curious. Like you're having at what age range or 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 stage in life would you say you're having some of these epiphanies? Maybe for the first time, was it mostly like in your college years where all this is kind of coming to a head for you? Yeah, I went to I went to Taylor University, which is like an evangelical college in Indiana, and it's, it's certainly <laughs> it's certainly hard to find like a counterculture there. But in high school, I got really interested in you know college rock. I started reading the Beats and poems and writing poetry, and I kind of had this thread of creativity and counterculture, and I couldn't find that in the church. And so in a way, I'd always felt like an, an outsider, kind of when I went through puberty and was a teenager, got to Taylor and could could not find that at all, except with a few people. So I found a few friends that really began to articulate this other way of, of living as a Christian and identifying as a Christian. And then the, the big thing that happened is that I started to um, attend this music festival in Illinois called Cornerstone. Do you know what it is? My band's played Cornerstone before. Oh. That's fantastic. Well, hey, I mean, you know, Japusa has gone on to have a complicated and interesting history. I mean, it's the story is certainly not like tied up in a bow. It's actually pretty, pretty sad and confusing. Yes, I have been to Cornerstone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the Cornerstone itself, um, you know, I I met for the first time when I was in high school and I thought these people are freaking weird and great and I love it. And there's actually a place for me, like in this world, there was like a Cornerstone University where they had lectures that were like super cool and like all of these bands. So I felt like there was a way for me to start to see uh, my faith differently. It kind of unlocked something. What was it? What was it like for you? I mean, you were in a band. I got to tell you my Cornerstone story. So, um, 
my band went out to play because okay, for those of you who don't know, Cornerstone's a big, um, maybe like like underground Christian music festival. It's more of like bands. It's like metal bands, bands that maybe are kind of on the fringe. Like me without you would play there. Um, uh, you know, the almost played there. Um, and, and it was a very unique spot. And one of the big draws is that as a band, you could pay to get on any almost any stage besides like the main one. So my band went to play some of these stages. We we we, we won a few contests. I am not, even though I'm, I'm still to this day a professional musician, I still play, I'm not a big festival person, period. I don't like being out in the sun all day. I'm not one to be standing all day. Not my thing. But, you know, we're going to play Cornerstone. So we went and we, we, we got there and we pitched a tent. And it was, it was the year where metal was the big thing. Okay. So you had, um, um, uh, let's see. The, the the big closer was the the Devil Wears Prada on on closing mm-hmm. night. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, you know you had other bands like the Gun Show was there and all this stuff. I remember getting there. We pitched our tent and and because there's like ten stages at once playing at once. I remember thinking to myself, I'm in Mordor. Like this is what this is like because you just hear <laughs> rumbling and growling everywhere all day, and it's hot as hell. Literally, it's like 110 degrees in my tent. I'm like, this is torture. What am I doing here? The, the, but I will say, once it cooled down at night, we had a great time. We had a lot of fun, and I also met the guys from my epic. Um, my my old uh, singer knew he went to college and was it was one of the guys' roommates. So we got to hang out with them for a bit. So my cornerstone story, it's an old one. It had to be, I guess. <laughs> 16 years ago now, maybe even longer. But man, like when you say Cornerstone, I'm like, hell yeah. Like I know exactly what you're talking about. And can I say one more really nerdy thing? I know it's a little bit long, but one more nerdy thing. When I was a kid, I was part of what was known as the Reliant K message boards. This is a real deep cut, okay? And I was on there for a <laughs> lot of years, a lot of years. And they uh, they would call themselves boardies. They would go to Cornerstone and they wrote me a sign with my name, which at the time was... Get ready, Sarah. I hope you're sitting down. It was the Poopinator. That was my <laughs> username. And they just wrote Poopinator. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm meeting people from online at Cornerstone watching my fan play. So anyway, that's just like, I know that's really a random story, but that's all tied up to Cornerstone. So yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> that is amazing. Speaking, I mean, my other, this is so dumb, but like, I remember at Cornerstone once we were like walking back to the tents, everybody camps. And there were kids like pushing over like the porta potties. So just to like take that thread a little further, just to yeah. gross folks out. Yeah, there were, it was certainly, it was certainly like remedial living, but you know, when you're a teenager or a kid, it's just, it's super fun. So. For sure. So it sounds like, you know, it sounds like you and I have a lot of crossover in like almost like that, that underground Christian counterculture scene. Um, I'm not sure about you, but I, I had the rock for life t-shirts, you know, I mean, I was one of those people. <laughs> yeah, um, and also, I mean, I was into all the, I mean, I, I was a drummer. I'm into all those bands. I still listen to a lot of them, you know, I mean, PAX 217, all those people were just like, that was my crew, right? And so I, I resonate with this idea of as you're trying to be this radical person for Jesus, you find yourself in evangelical culture thinking this is radical. But as you keep going, you discover that actually it's not nearly radical enough in a lot of ways. Is that yep. is that kind of how you saw it? Because that's how I saw it. Yeah, I t- that's totally how I saw it. And that's like a week, you know, that was like the cornerstone was kind of the parallel of going to kind of like a church camp where kids get really pumped up. And then pretty quickly that like burns off and you yeah. realize that you're just left in this l- larger world that is confusing. I mean, I think that like the church today has certainly lost like what whatever that was, whatever that era was, like the 90s and 2000s, we've, we've lost that edge. I mean, part of that's just like the internet era and like the world, the waters we swim in. And so it's easy to find folks that do connect like online, but like, I think a real loss of imagination has been an issue for the church. And the fact that like, I don't think a lot of artists or punks or weirdos or I don't think there's like a home or a welcome or a lot of room right now for folks like that. And that is that imagination is like an anecdote to (laughs) nationalism to like political rhetoric, like, I mean, those folks like that are like running as I think they should be, except from the church, except that I think that Jesus is, again, a compelling reason to to kind of reconsider what what that might mean. So that was a little floaty, but. Well, no, it's, it's okay. We, we have to explore this for one minute. Then we're going to get to your book, I promise. But, but, but while we're here, um, I don't want to sound like one of those elder millennials. Like, well, back in my day, the music was just, but, but when I think about the bands and what they were talking about and the music. 
you're right. Like that whole world is kind of gone, or they've grown up. Like, like, like for example, Under Oath is probably maybe maybe the biggest 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 example of this, where they were one of those like really underground bands. They exploded, always kind of Christian. Then they, in a way, deconstructed, right? And like now they're they're writing albums that are are kind of pushing back on that culture. I've actually talked to Aaron Gillespie, uh, and we had a whole conversation about that, right? So there's that side of it, but also there is this side of like uh, commercialization. Where where now what is cool and what is in music wise is like these massive worship bands. Um, and listen, as a drummer, I played all of them. I know all those songs. They're they're fine, but they kind of they kind of have you you lose that like punk counterculture edge. And now that they've just become the culture in bed with things like Christian nationalism, right? In bed with consumerism. I mean, you know, the 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 evangelical megachurch cultures, it's like a billion dollar industry between its yeah. music, its its TV, its its movies. And it's like, are are we thinking about this at all? I mean, I'm not sure about you, but have you seen that video that went viral of, of the drummers floating in yeah. that church, oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> Someone went to the show and sent me videos. So I, I, I got videos and it's it is it's a massive freaking production right and you wild. have to wonder like okay am i the crazy one here for reading the gospels and jesus like <laughs> jesus is literally like hey uh it's harder for a rich guy to enter the kingdom than for the uh, camel to go through the eye of a needle which is, he's pretty much saying it's impossible and we're like well god wants our best it's okay I'm like, I, are we getting it though like i totally. i struggle with that what are your thoughts I mean, it's not the first, I mean, think about like Cornerstone was started by Jesus People USA, started by hippie Christians, you know, like yeah. this commune was started in Chicago in the seventies, thinking about what happened with Calvary Chapel and Lonnie Frisbee and like radical baptisms off the coasts of California after the summer of love. Like that was like a radical time and folk music was its own kind of punk of the day. Right. Yeah, and so yeah. Larry Norman and other folks like, we're really radical with a radical message. There's all these cool photos you can find of people with like peace signs with like super cool hippie Jesus-y clothes online. Um, but like, that's what became CCM, right? Like like um, the first time that Jesus people went into Chuck Smith's church, Calvary Chapel, like they had like bells on their feet and like the whole congregation turned and like saw these like flower children come in and thought, what's happening? Mm. And this is this is like then what becomes folk becomes contemporary Christian becomes a whole industry. And so yeah. the counterculture, it's just like, and it's not just the church, it's like in culture in general, like right. it becomes watered down and commercialized again and again. Right. And so I'm like so hungry for some other expression of that or some other new wave of that with some hope that maybe it wouldn't end up being um, crappy or produced or consumerized or whatever the word is. I mean, that makes sense because let's face it, Hot Topic makes a lot of money selling counterculture <laughs> by becoming its own culture, right? I mean, totally. Right? That's, it's that kind of vibe right. where it's like, oh, they're so underground. No one knows who they are. They're in every damn mall in America, okay? That's like right. we all know who Hot Topic is, right? <laughs> Shopping these days can be underwhelming, but at QVC, we believe those who love to shop deserve a living, breathing way to shop, where product descriptions are alive with demos by creators, chats with inventors, and hosts who know the most. From self-care and kitchenware to fashion trends and forever faves, at QVC, we bring life to products and products to life. Shop qvc.com podcast and use code QVC15podcast for $15 off $30 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. So let's let's tie us back into your book, right? So you and I, in that way, kind of feel like kindred spirits. We 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 kind of grew up in a lot of the same waters and had a lot of the same thoughts. I started New Evangelicals, you know, I fell into the world of becoming a nonprofit all of a sudden, trying to make it work full time. You write a book called Orphan Believers, and what like in the book you obviously talk about about these three big you know maybe critiques of like, hey, this is why I'm struggling with all of this. But you also mentioned in the book that 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 you want to provide hope for those who grew up in the church. And we actually use this language too, but are weary and wondering. I mean, we literally use that language. We're actually launching, actually, by this time, it might, it might already be out, a second podcast called The Roads We Wonder, W-O-N-D-E-R, just telling people stories of like of like how they did this, right? So I we use that language. So what is what's the hope that you want to give people who are you know, they're, they're worn out. Like they, they volunteered, they were the drummers, you know, suspended to midair, you know, um, whatever. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, um, I'm, I'm done with it. Like it's bullshit. What do you say to those people? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the, this is what I would say. Either I am, I am choosing to believe that there was actually a person 
that lived in the world named Jesus that was God. Like I am actually as a rational adult that has like an, an above average or average intelligence and, and interacts with the world. Like I either choose to accept that Jesus um, is the foundation of Christian faith. Like I either buy it or I don't. And so I may be living my life. Um, I may be doing this work. I may be trying to reform the church or call for change or bring everything up. Uh, and it may all be that I'm foolish and it's just a joke, but I, I, I am compelled to believe in the Christian story because I think there's a beauty and a goodness that, that is like transformational and like real. So if you like peel back the onion of all the layers of consumerism, what nationalism, end times culture, single issue, if you peel it all back, is there something good and true in the core? And like, I found that, yeah, for me, there is still something compelling. And I, how that happened was through getting serious about formation. Like, you know, I didn't grow up learning about like praying and being quiet. I didn't grow up practicing a lot of, I didn't grow up with liturgy. Like Catholicism was like freaky and Catholics probably weren't Christians, you know, <laughs> definitely like, not. I didn't, I didn't understand. <laughs> I didn't understand those pieces, but when I began to like five or six years ago, get serious about spiritual formation, contemplative Christianity, just reading the Psalms, just like shutting up in my head and just trying to be quiet and listen. Like mm. I found some really transformational, good, beautiful and true things there. So that that's, that's what, what my story is and why it's worth it to me. Why, what are you, tell me if this rings true for you. Some days you just want to burn the whole thing down. And other days you're like, maybe we can like work with inside to like, you know, hopefully change culture or, or maybe it's not the most pragmatic thing to burn it all down. So I'll try and work, work within the system. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? I mean, I, I, it depends on the day. It depends on, on what Donald Trump says. It depends on, on which far right, you know, yeah. person's platformed by, Ugh. you know, um, Jack Hibbs. Um, you know, what what do we do here? Like from your vantage point, do we burn this thing down? Do we try better? Like, what does it look like for you? Yeah. I mean, if, if it's true that like what the church is, is just the gathered community of believers, like the church is like what Jesus left us with. And mm -hmm. so I think there'll always be some remnant or expression of folks that are actually pursuing Jesus. Like to me, that's the church. So what that looks like. Right. If folks are taking a break, if folks are done, if it's two or three people meeting, if it's people in a congregation that's healthy, like whatever that is, I think, I think for me, the question is, how do we both pull everything apart, like burn it down, like lift it, lift up what's good and true. But like, I don't know, I guess it's both for me, Tim. Like I want to put, bring everything to light. I don't mm. know. I want to like burn everything down that should be burned down right. because I believe that if this whole thing is true and not a myth that the church remains because that's what God left us with. So that's, that's kind of where I, where I land. No, I mean, I, I feel a lot of that. Uh, a lot of people who DM us or who are part of our community, they truly feel like abandoned, right. By, by their communities. And I mean, I have stories in my DMS of, you know, Hey, I, I said black lives matter on Facebook and I was fired from my church. Like, I mean, literal like stories like that, that make your jaw drop. Right. And yeah. you, you, I say to myself, like, well, all I knew was that culture. I don't know how to build, like, I'm 34 with two kids, okay? Building new friendships, like, it takes a lot of time yeah. and effort. And I'm also trying to run a damn nonprofit and I'm podcasting, yeah. I'm making content all day. Like, I don't, I don't know how to find new friends again that also have, like, this counterculture, counter radicalness about them that isn't steeped in fundamentalism, right? Because I also yeah. grew up in that where I'm like, I'm so radical because I listen to Paul Washer, you know, and it's <laughs> like, okay, well, there, that is radical, but are there different ways of being radical that maybe are a little more, you know, justice oriented? So totally. I, I yeah. struggle with that. I think a lot, even personally, where I yeah. just go like, I, I don't know where else to go besides online, which I think is why our, our organization grew so quickly because I, where else are you going to go? Yeah, it's a felt need. It resonates because it's something that people are searching for. Like, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I've gone to the same, so I've gone to the same church for 18 years. It's like a small Anglican church in Capitol Hill in Seattle. And it's full of people, like, it's full of people that are all just kind of like broken and figuring it out. And that like Sufjan Stevens and like sad music, it's like very liturgical. You know, yeah. it's been like a healthy place yeah. for me, but I see that as being like an exception to the rule for mm. sure. And so I think that when I think about it, it's like how, if the church has 
largely been kind of culturally co-opted. Like if it's part of the American experiment that has like been super negative for so many people, like, I don't know, I guess I feel like if those of us that are still in the church because we've somehow found an exception or a little bit of a pocket of, of, of kind of a healthy community, like, can we do the work if we can from inside the church? Like if our hearts are burning for change and we still feel safe or like made welcome in whatever congregation, like, but it is our job to like do the work to make other people welcome. And maybe that's just online or in person. But yeah. I guess the the other thing I think about is how in evangelicalism, I feel like there's such a personal salvation narrative and like a personal moment. Like a lot of people, I ask Jesus into my heart like every night for <laughs> weeks, like for months and years. Oh, yeah. But like, I think that that evangelical kind of exceptional individualism is linked to consumerism and yeah. the market too. Yeah. But like, to me, we can carry each other. So like there have been times when I have felt like I've been in a spiritual desert and like my husband has carried me through those times. There are times that in health community, online, in person, whatever can carry us through seasons like of doubt or of wandering. And I think that's really beautiful and true and not just like lip service. So I yeah. think that my, my desire is to find more people that can carry each other in these seasons, you know, and if life is long, then let it take the time it takes. I mean, I wandered in a spiritual desert for 12 years, like after a community ended in Seattle, I just wandered around figuring out what my purpose was, what I was doing, why everything fell apart, where God was for more than a decade of my life, you know? Mm. And so again, it was like contemplative Christianity stuff that brought me back around um, Mm. eventually. But like, let it take the time it takes, you know? Yeah. I think I struggle a lot because I struggle with, you know, you mentioned this individual salvation narrative that we've really just been like drilled into our heads. It's like, that is the gospel. You can't question it. It's objectively true. And it's things like that that make me say, I don't know if the evangelical church even wants to explore beyond its own basement, right? Um, and I don't know... If if we see something so foundational as salvation to them differently, right? To them, like we are heretics. Like we've lost everything to them. We've lost what it means not to burn alive forever. The fact that we would even say that that hell is complicated and like what it actually means has been pretty debated like throughout Christian history. Mm-hmm. Already puts us in the camp of liberal or progressive or something that that you know at least the Childers has already critiqued us for. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I I struggle with that side where it's like I I didn't want to leave my space. My church put me in a position where they said either you you stop doing this work or you stop serving with us as a drummer. Right? I didn't want to leave. Like I was able to make room for them theologically. But I feel like that institution is built on such an exclusive fundamentalist Christian theology that even other Christians can't work with them. Like Catholics, right? You made a joke about that, but it's true. I grew up with the same thing. Like, oh, well, they they have a workspace salvation. They pray to Mary. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, they have priests. You know, as if somehow our 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 mega church pastors aren't our own priests somehow, right? Like they're no, no, no. It's not like that. So I I think I struggle with that a lot. Where the more I do this work and the more I see this, this, you know, I, the more I see evangelicalism um, and Christian nationalism as bedfellows who are consensually engaging right in bedfellow yeah. activities, right? I go. I don't know if you guys want to change. <laughs> I don't think you want out of the bed. I think you're yeah. pretty comfy there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as you're talking, I'm actually like, I'm like feeling like emotional because it's like what you're expressing is grief. Like what happened to so many of us never should have happened, you know? And like the, the like if I think about nationalism, I mean, Christianity began 2000 years ago, whatever, in the Middle East. And then there's this hollow take on Christianity in nationalism that was co-opted, but really like recently, like if you think about Carter, Carter wasn't evangelical, he was a Southern Democrat, he was a Southern Baptist Democrat. Yep. Like it's only been, the moral majority has only really risen in our lifetimes, like in the 80s and 90s and not like it, it's just such a small pocket of time that's done so much damage and harm over the sort of great span of the, of the faith, you know? And so like we, you know, we like do communion, like in processionals, like, you know, every Sunday, and I like stand on this line and think people have like come before me and people will come after me. And like, how cool is it to get to right now 
be here and alive and try to do and leave something good. Um, and, and so yeah, that's, I don't know if that's comforting, but I just, I'm relating and feeling a lot of what you're saying. Well, I think that's just, why a lot of us left the basement because the basement pretends that's not part of the house. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, like you actually are. And if you allow yourself to explore the house, it can actually make your basement even better. Um, and it's actually quite beautiful, right? Like I, I visited a friend's church a while ago who was Anglican, first time in my life. And my wife and I were like super kind of in awe. And it was a very like sacred feeling. And I don't use that term lightly these days anymore. I, I rarely use that term. But it, it, it was there was something beautiful about centering around the Eucharist, centering around communion. It wasn't flashy. The priest prayed against gentrification in, in their local area. And I was like, oh my God, the the <laughs> the actions, like, like, like the physical piece of the church looks more conservative, but their theology is actually quite liberating and progressive in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah, this, is, right. this doesn't make any sense because we grew up in spaces yeah, that, totally. that look progressive and cutting edge, but are actually just fundamentalists with a different skin on, right? So it's, right. it's a weird combination for me to kind of reconcile, but it was, it was really beautiful and I loved it. Yeah, the the cool thing about not to get like too in the weeds with Anglicanism, but you know, it's like the homily, like the message comes early and is shorter and is not this like communion, like the table is the centerpiece. Like yeah. it the the spotlight is off of the person giving the message and it's more about about the Eucharist. So it's it's super visceral and cool in that way. So let me ask you this, you know, and again, I appreciate making time as we start kind of maybe landing the plane a little bit here. Um I I my wife and I don't attend a Sunday morning gathering anywhere. I just put bluntly, I can never go back to, to non-affirming evangelical spaces. Like it just, it can't ever happen. I'm not interested in that anymore. At the same time, like I also don't want to be, forgive the language, but kind of bored to death with like liturgy and just like, I, it mm-hmm. feels very mechanical to me. That's my own bias talking. I've been just kind of developed and 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 wired to believe that, even though I find those moments sacred. What do you say to people who are trying to maybe find some kind of third way forward and like they want to be part of a community, they want to maybe even gather in some way on a Sunday or a, I don't know Sunday night. You know, yeah. have you you being the punk rocker that you are, uh, have you thought about some <laughs> countercultural ways here of just like, yeah, like how does this how does this kind of radical punk rock stream that we were brought into kind of continue in its own yeah. radical countercultural way? Totally. Maybe it's because I'm in my 40s and I'm an introvert. So <laughs> so I've slowed down. I think the liturgy point is like a good one. Like, you know, we're bringing up a couple kids as Anglicans and it's like, how does it like they said the other like my, my son said, I don't want to go. It's it's boring. <laughs> and it is. It, I mean, it is. It is kind of if you think about it, it is kind of boring. Mm-hmm. And, and then underneath it, like yes. if it gets to be like contemplative, quiet, visceral, there's like there's incense that can be used. Like it's, it's actually very beautiful and meaningful, but I think it's easier. I mean, I'm being kind of funny, but like for introverts or for folks that are a little bit quieter to kind of more easily find that space. And that's just, that's me. I don't, I, I don't even know. I don't know if you're an introvert or extrovert, honestly. Oh, no, I'm, I'm extrovert, but my wife okay. is introvert and she can't wait to go to a Quaker meeting and sit for an hour yeah. and say nothing. I'm like, that, that sounds like hell on earth. You want me not to talk funny. for an hour? Are you, you've lost your mind? But, you know, anyway, yeah. So that's how our relationship works. Totally. That's so funny. Yeah, for sure. Um, but in terms of like another expression of what that could be, I mean, I don't know if I have a great answer except to say – there's like pretty cool practices like the examine where there's just, you can find them like online. There's the praise you go app, right? We do it sometimes with the kids where you just go and scan your day and like, thank God for it and set an intention for tomorrow. There's like so many like small little things that you can do that can be really beautiful and hopefully not boring, but meaningful. Um, but for me as a writer, I mean, uh, I consider like, it's not communal, but I consider like a time of prayer church to be, writing sometimes and mm. just like working it out and like talking to God in that way, you know? And so it's just very, it's interesting Tim, because it's very like, I guess liturgical is the church that I'm in, but I'm also like super casual. And so right. I, I, I really kind of try to just find God in like normal ways as I'm talking or like hanging out with people. So it's just, it's just sort of depends on personalities and, and interests. So I wish I had a better answer, but I, I also think it could be something that has to do with a visceral kind of small gathering that was centered on on prayer or music or hanging out. 
Yeah. Food too. I, I hope. Yeah. I'm all about food. I'm very much like you. I'm, I'm an extremely casual person. I live pretty much in gym shorts and, and a six dollar Hanes t-shirt like 24 <laughs> seven. Um, I, I think it's because I grew up in a fundamentalist church that made me wear suits as a kid. So I just knew like the oh, wow. second I didn't have to wear a suit, I was never going to wear one again. So I'm just, I'm yeah. Anyway. Um, also my body type is weird. I have very long arms. So finding a dress shirt that doesn't like strangle my neck, but not also give me enough arm space is like impossible. So t-shirts are the way to go for me. You, you would like Seattle, everybody. I mean, the version of that is like fleece, but still nobody, yeah. nobody yeah. dresses up here. Yeah. That's, those are my people. <laughs> I'm on the way. Okay. You know, last question. So your book, I mean, what would be if someone's listening to this podcast and like, oh my god, Cornerstone, oh my god, I, yes, I, that's me, yes, I feel all this, and and they're they're resonating with 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 the title of your book and just kind of you. What is one thing, or maybe it could be two, whatever, that that you hope someone like that gets out of this book? Like they come away yeah. with the book and they go, this really helped. Um, that it is. I mean, simply that you don't have to if you are pursuing Jesus in in the presence of a lot of pretty gnarly enemies, you don't have to walk away. Like you do not have to walk away from that relationship, even as things are incredibly broken, you know, and whether that means church being a part of your life or not being a part of your life, like whatever the sort of larger community looks like, like the actual, if the actual person of Jesus is compelling in that message, like that's enough. And there are, there are other people in the world, like the author of a book called Orphan Believers, that are like are like holding fast because because other people believe it's worth it too. So we a lot of us are lonely, but we're finding each other. And so I guess I would just want them to think you're, I'm not alone. There's a way forward, even if I don't know what it all looks like yet practically, and that there's hope, and that there's a forty something, you know, there's like a middle aged white lady in Seattle that's like used to be punk <laughs> that actually is like, it's like holding fast. Like there's, there's someone else. Yeah. That's there's really helpful. I gotta say, I'm a big fan of you, except there's, there's one, I have one point of contention with you. I, I have okay, to be honest, you know, we're, we're always transparent here. I you like spell it. your name with no H. Oh, and my wife is Sarah <laughs> with an H and you know, I, I'm a, I'm a good partner. So I gotta say, I'm disappointed, what, Sarah. Do you know what's, I mean, well, do you know, it's weird. Like my dad's Jewish, like obviously the H is, is, is Hebrew correct or whatever. But like I came up, I was born in the seventies with like Fleetwood Mac mm -hmm. and that song, Sarah is ageless. And I think that they somehow wow. pop culture, see pop culture even came in then. Wow. When we thought about the H or no H. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> the book friends is orphaned believers. Is it out? Is it out now? January 24th. Oh, so probably close to out now, if not out now, most likely. So that's super exciting. We'll try and have this podcast out right around when the book launches. Um, I appreciate you making time and being on the podcast. Where can folks find you? Are you on Twitter, Instagram? Plug away. Yep, I, I'm mostly on Instagram at sarah.billups, and then I write on Substack at Bitter Scroll. Um, Tim, this has been so much fun and also really meaningful. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm sure we'll do it again at some point in the future. Sounds good. Thanks.